Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making podcast. We're going to be joining Rick Evans again in week two of his series, Over the Creeds. He's going to be teaching us about what the Apostles' Creed is and why it's important for Christians today. So we're going to get started. Um, did anybody have any questions from last week? Um, we covered a lot last week. As I mentioned some earlier, I threw a lot at you. Um, just to recap, we saw how creeds were found in Scripture. Um, Old Testament, the Shema, we talked about in Deuteronomy. Heroes of the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Um, and how foundation that will be. And we'll be coming back to that theme again. Um, and then we saw it, how it was in the New Testament. The, the creeds were in the New Testament too. Such simple ones as Jesus is Lord, to 1 Corinthians 15, portions of that, that kind of thing. Then we saw um, the development of the rule of faith. That was kind of a summary of of teachings the main teaching one really creed but they were kind of like putting together their thoughts on what the main teachings were and then um we did the baptismal formulation there at the end one reason i brought up the baptismal formulation is because it's going to lead in these other creeds that we're going to talk about and this week we'll do it, the apostles creed next week we'll do the nicene creed um and we're going to break down these creeds but i want us to get in the mindset of what they hey hey, um, what they were going through in the, in their mindset at that time, um, as we talked about last week, um, we think about especially in the scriptural passages the Jewish mindset they had, um, and Anson even talked about that. Um, yeah, I do. I'll make sure I'm making you two here. Um, there you go, sure. Um, Ansel talked about that yesterday a little bit. You heard his sermon yesterday talking about um, Yahweh and talking about the I am and all that kind of thing in the Jewish mindset there a little bit. That's kind of what we talked about last week as well. Hey, hey, come in, come in. Um, But they're putting together, as they go out of that Jewish context, the word's spreading. They're going to go into um, Gentile lands, Greek-speaking, so they're now finding different ways to say the same thing, but they're putting it in more, in, in different contexts, different, different ways of saying it. Um, I happen to, I wasn't planning on doing this, I'm gonna play something here real quick for you. I was listening to this on the way over. I did not know they were gonna say this, but this is um, from a radio show out of the United Kingdom. Uh, this was done, this was from July, and I was just catching up, and thought I'll listen to this podcast on the way over, and, and this came up. And this is a conversation between um, a non-Christian historian named Tom Holland and the Christian theologian, New Testament scholar, historian, N.T. Wright. Some of you may have heard of N.T. Wright before. Um, he's, I'm not saying everything he says we would agree with theologically at Emmaus, but the cores we would and what he's done historically and his historical research has been wonderful for Christianity. Uh, he's probably one of the leading scholars in the last 50 years 
And anyway, so they're having this conversation. And one thing great about the United Kingdom, their debates are so friendly. I mean, they can really teach us something here. But anyway, this is a conversation they're talking about the Apostle Paul. And both this guy were really impressed with Paul. So here, here they are. And I'm going to just play a brief segment of this that was just kind of like, oh my gosh. So I just wanted, I just, there's N.T. Wright saying from the beginning. And that's one thing I was trying to emphasize. This is a little more of that recap. Last week I was trying to get you all, I kept, I said at the beginning, I tried to emphasize the early dates, the early dates. Because scholarship, and I think I mentioned this, 20, 30, 40 years ago, oh, it's a late date. A lot of this stuff came later. And as N.T. Wright just said there at the end, as scholarship showing, it came early. It came right off, right from the beginning. And you may have heard of um, the Da Vinci Code, for example, that book. It had this, it was terrible history, but a lot of people believed it. And it had that idea of it was, you know, everything was kind of developed in the fourth, you know, third or fourth century. And it's not. And that's one thing I'm trying to emphasize and show this development. It was there from the beginning. A lot of these things, the creeds are just solidifying that teaching and, and making us understand that better. So, um, hey, how are you? Good. Yeah. Do you need a pen? That's unbelievable. With a question mark, I think it is. And what they, it's a great podcast. If you ever listen to it, they, um, it's on Premier Christian Radio out of the United Kingdom on Great Britain. And um, they usually have debates, usually a Christian, non Christian, maybe a Christian and Muslim, or, you know, Christian atheist a lot of times. But I think, but again, it's, they could teach us a lot about our political world, would benefit from hearing how they actually. Here you go. They get along. So um, anyway, and that was, I just heard that and I thought, oh gosh, I want to play another, but I'm going to play that. Um, so we're going to get to the creeds now because we're at the part of the church. The scripture's written. It hasn't been all put together in, in what we'd say the canon. hasn't been decided. As Protestants, we see scripture as being recognized as scripture. Um, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox would say the church decides what is scripture. Um, as Protestants, we would say scripture is self-evident and the church would come to realize that. The gospels, as by the time we were getting to the rule of faith, gospels were a done deal. Everybody, that's scripture. Paul's letters, you know, that's a done deal. There are a few things out there. They weren't sure about Hebrews, for example, Book of Revelation, um, maybe a, one or two other things, but those later obviously would be decided. Um, but scripture's coming into to being. But so, how as Protestants do we deal with the creeds? What is their authority? Um, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, for example, would put them because they came from church decisions. Um, on par with scripture, especially the Roman Catholics. Um, we'll talk about, here's Augustine on, on or Augustine, however we want to pronounce it, um, on his, his words on it. Um, in his treatise on the creed, defined the symbol, the sign, as a brief compendium of divine truths that lie scattered across the pages of scripture. I thought that was a great way to say it. Whereas Rome regarded the creeds as oracles from God, 
the Protestant reformers accepted the Apostles' Creed and the decrees of the first four councils because of their agreement with Holy Scripture. Ultimately, the creeds must be checked and ruled by the Word of God. Christendom's creeds are worthy of honor to the degree that they accord with the teaching of the Word of God. Note in the first place that the creed is a rule, a symbol or standard is what they mean. If we desist from divinizing, divine, divine, div, I can't say it. Thank you. The creed, neither do we depreciate the intrinsic worth and relevance. We acknowledge that the creeds reflect the overwhelming faith consciousness of the early church. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds, and Athanasian Creed, which we will talk about next week, affirm those core truths of the gospel embraced by the church from the beginning. So, as Protestants, the creeds are value to us in that they line up with scripture. Because as Protestants, we believe scripture is the ultimate authority. And this uh, gentleman, um, Oliver Crisp, has a great way of saying it. He's, he goes on, on a hierarchy. He says, Holy Scripture, then the creeds and confessions, and then your you know, Christian theologians. Um, we talk about Augustine, Luther, Calvin, you know, for Emmaus, that kind of thing. Um, Anson, of course, would say Spurgeon. Um, um, so evangelicals who stand on the full authority of the Bible and hold to God's providence and faithful presence with his church should take seriously the creeds and councils. Our impulse should be to assume their truthfulness as we continue to test their biblical fidelity. In this generation, if this generation takes seriously its value of community, then we won't neglect this great community of saints spanning 2,000 years. So, that's where we keep that in mind as we study these creeds. History of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, unlike the Nicene Creed, wasn't decided by a church council. It grew out of what we've been talking about, the rule of faith, and we see a little bit in the baptismal formulation. And what's happening here is, I'm going to do a little map here. What's happening here in the early church, um, let's say this is Jerusalem right here, and we go up and you have um, Greece and then Rome and Egypt here, um, the Red Sea, this great map. Um, and what's happening is um, the word is spreading and churches in certain segments are coming up with creeds based on the rule of faith and the baptism formulation. They're very similar but they're not all identical, but they're very similar. And some are worse. So you may have a you know, creed that dwells in some churches there, and some there, and some there. One that sticks is over here in Rome. It became known as the Old Roman Symbol. And you don't know that's not that, I'm not going to get bogged down in that. But it develops into, we get an idea of it. I don't even know if there's actually a formal copy. They just can tell it was referred to. The baptismal formulation, they think, was either came from the creed itself or helped develop the creed, the one, that, the one we talked about last week. So, and what happens here is these are all popping up. Now, Eastern Orthodoxy, there's various views on how Eastern Orthodoxy views the Apostles' Creed. And when I talk about Eastern Orthodoxy, I know that's kind of, if you have, the church grows, 
You have Jerusalem, obviously where it starts, and they spread out. You have Antioch. You have Alexandria over the first few hundred years. And you have Greek, eventually Constantinople, or as today we know, Istanbul. Well, as these churches in these major cities are growing, their initial pastors are getting said, okay, now you're also in charge in the churches in the surrounding area. So they're becoming more and more and more prominent and have more and more responsibility. And they start to become what became known as bishops after the few centuries and that kind of thing. So all this power. This one, because it, Paul and Peter helped establish Rome and died there, and because Rome was the seat of the empire, had a special place they called the first among equals. And the equals were Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Alexandria was very prominent, um, had a famous library. A lot of the early church fathers we'll talk about came from Alexandria. Um, eventually, there's a split here because Rome started thinking, you know, our, our bishop really is the top guy and he's going to make the decisions. And these guys said, I don't think so. You know, you have a special seat of honor, but I don't think so. And eventually there's an emperor that says, I really like Constantinople. We're going to have kind of a dual leadership role and it causes splits and other causes splits too. Anyway, this is still early, well before the split. We will talk about the split next week, especially when we get the Nicene Creed. There's a touchy issue that we're going to touch on that, that comes up. But, um, but for now, the Eastern Orthodox say, this was not identified at, by a council, so we're not going to say we formally recognize it. Um, they also have some other, one other issue with it, although many of them I, I, I looked at said, we don't mind it. We'll even say now and then. So they don't have a problem. So many times you'll hear referred to as it's recognized by all three branches of Christianity, which to a degree it is. It's probably held in more esteem by the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. Um, if any of you do like a, um, a liturgical daily devotion or something like that, oftentimes the apostles, you'll get passages of scripture and certain prayers. The Apostles' Creed is in there daily. It's that kind of prominence. So anyway, so it, as one scholar said, it grew out of the life of the church. It was a grassroots thing. Um, according to legend, the Apostles' Creed was written by the apostles 10 days after the ascension. In reality, however, it probably emerged in Rome, as we talked about, as an early in, a statement of faith used at baptism of new converts in the late second or early third century. The precise wording of the uh, Apostles' Creed developed over several centuries, and the present form goes back to the 8th century. So it was kind of tinkered with for a while, and added on, and, and one of those tinkerings we're going to talk about. Um, the ancient churches asked candidates for baptism three questions, and this is something we talked about last week um, in the baptismal formulation. From this came the Apostles' symbol or sign identifying the community in baptism, and then eventually the Creed in its current working. Uh, the creed then was not set for the beginning, but was fluid. Um, the old, oldest formal form we have is from 337. Um, the creed was never intended as a substitute for the four Gospels, but only as a guide to the faithful reading of them. So here, we'll start with the, the creed. I believe in God. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We're going to go not just line by line, but we're going to break out some words here. Now, I put some scripture quotes in here. Some of these, we could spend three weeks just coming up with scripture quotes. So obviously, I did not give you, I mean, you'd have a book of, if we did the Apostles' Creed and every passage that pertained to these various comments. Um, so, and some may come to your mind, and feel free to you know, write down, oh, I thought of this one, and this one comes to mind, that kind of thing. But here's some, some that, um, to keep in mind. Of course, it starts, I believe. Um, we'll see the, the Nicene Creed will start, we believe. This one starts, I believe. Um, probably from that baptismal formulation idea. So Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. And Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, Thomas Oden writes, the second and third century Christians who first said credo, or I believe, yeah, one of, the, one of these right here. Oh, uh, you're fine. Um, who first said credo did not do so thoughtlessly. At times they uttered this word at risk of their, their lives under threat of possible persecution torture, and death. Those prepared to suffer for and sacrifice their lives for their belief in God's good news are worthy of our careful attention. To say credo, or I believe, in this way was to speak from the heart in direct defiance of the powers that be, precisely when those powers require direct denial of Christian faith. To say, I believe, is to reveal, reveal who one most deeply is to confess one's essential belief, to state openly the truth that makes life worth living despite perilous consequences. I think in our social media today, we can easily throw out all our, to watch the news, especially these political days, say, so, you know, I believe this, I believe that, it's thrown out. When the Apostles' Creed was, when they said, I believe, I mean, they were reflecting on the deepest things and saying, a little bit what we talked about last week on the um, on the essentials, what's written in pencil, what's written in pen, and what's written in blood. It's kind of, I believe, I'll, I'll say this, I believe. And we need to keep that in mind when we, we say these things, if we, we mean it or not. In God, Deuteronomy 6.4, oh, look at there, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8.6. 
Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things in whom we exist. And it's not a coincidence those two are together. Many scholars see Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, taking the Shema and making it apply to Jesus. That's that. There's the Shema again, and then it's important, and they're saying Jesus is part of the Shema. He's part of that God. God the Father, then you, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give your good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Obviously, Father, a lot in the Old Testament, a lot in the New Testament, you can spend all day on that. Almighty, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Maker of heaven and earth, Psalm 115 and Psalm 121. May be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. One thing, keep in mind, we're going to do a little time traveling here. So we keep getting this mindset is we talked about these heresies that are popping up and one of them was the Gnostics. Gnostics thought material things, earth, life, flesh and blood, they're bad. We're trying to escape that. That's one of the goals of life. Apostle Creed is including a lot of this to push back on that. It's not the only reason. Creeds are, some will say, well, the creeds were created just to fight heresies. That's one thing they did, but they also came from just stating what you believed. So it's, there was, they came, and this is one of those where they wanted to make sure it was communicated. You know, flesh and blood is good. The earth is good. It's not just escaping this. Yes? Are there creeds like this in other religions? Because yeah, matter of fact. Up to this, other religious people could say that they so far agree with Christians until it's Jesus that kind of separates some of the, I think monotheistic I mean you may you might get a, a Muslim that could agree with that some do have creeds not like this matter of fact um, I think I played or mentioned the on your notes from last week the um, Yaroslav Pelican quote about if my we're saying the same creeds that they said in the Philippines this morning that the Emperor Justin said in the 6th century, you know, my grandfather, you know, I'll say that. He goes on in that podcast to talk about creeds in other faiths. Okay. Um, and specifically, I think he talked, obviously Judaism has them, but you, I don't know if we want to say Judaism is a different religion. Um, matter of fact, that part I played from Tom Wright today, he would say no. He would say, because they asked him, they asked him earlier in that podcast, "What about the conversion of Paul?" And he says, "I don't like that term. That means you're taking from one religion to another." Paul didn't see it that way. He was seeing he was taking Judaism to its fullest extent. But Pelican does talk about. I, I remember, if I remember correctly, I'm, I'm sure I do. He talks about some creeds in other religions as well. So yes. Yeah, I think that yeah. You know, I think that, yeah, there would be a common ground of, of dialogue. Or so they would think. So they would think, yes, yes. And, yeah, you, you get with Muslims, especially on the issue of Jesus, it becomes a different, tricky. Sure. Were anybody in the perspective, in uh, the um, 
What was the class they did on Islam last year, last summer? Yeah. Was anybody in that one? Okay. Is there a different version of this for Protestants? Cause What's that? I don't, I'd have a hard time saying I believe in the Holy Spirit, but Holy Catholic Church. I'll, we'll, get, no, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Hold on here. Hold on. Hold on. There's going to be some, there's going to be some lines. I did say it that way. Yes. Yeah, we're going to get to that line. We're going to get to that line. I'm glad you brought that. But there's some lines you're going to think, we'll get to some. Because there are going to be other lines that some other Christians say, I don't know what that one. Okay, okay, I'll not. <laughs> um, that's right. Okay, then I say Article 2. And remember, we were talking about in Scripture how Scripture was started to be broken down in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Well, or in that baptismal formulation, they asked one question about God the Father. God the, well, these creeds are kind of broken down in the same way. So an article, it doesn't say Article 2 in the creed. But it's kind of like, okay, part two, now we're going to talk Jesus. So, and in Jesus. And Matthew 121, she'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Christ, which of course means Messiah. Um, it's not his last name. Mark 8, 27, Jesus said that his, um, and his disciples went on the village around Caesarea Philippi on his way. He asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But it's a question we talked about last week that we all have to answer. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And he answered, you are the Messiah. Tim Keller said, I have encountered churches that claim we don't teach doctrine, we just preach Jesus. But the moment you ask them, well, who is Jesus? What did he do? The only way to answer is to begin to lay out doctrine. And we talked about that last week, too. Um, his only son. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, who I'm, who I, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. In John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And little bit of that Jewish mindset again. In that passage, the idea is he dwelt among us, he tabernacled. He tabernacled. To the Jews, that's, oh wow. They get, I mean, it clicks. Well, this, he's, we know who tabernacled, we know from the Old Testament who we set up the tabernacle for. He tabernacled with us. Kind of, he put on a tent for us. Um, and here's N.T. Wright. I won't go into that because I just played the quote on the podcast from him. Um, but essentially saying what we just heard him say by his own words. Um, that Paul quickly, they were quickly saying, we're talking about the deity of Christ. Our Lord, John 20, 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Confession of Jesus as Lord was not a matter of mere assent or academic affirmation. It was a life and death issue. It meant standing up to the Caesars of the world who absorbed for themselves the praise and power that rightly belonged to God. As Christians today, our highest vocation is to live our lives under Jesus' lordship and to make it clear to all that this Jesus, whom men and women reject, is Lord of all. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit 
Matthew 1.20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Clearly this has divinity written all over in aspects. Born. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He's the Christ. Again, two things going on here. The, the full humanity of Christ. But also again, flesh and blood is good. He didn't, one's a spirit. And come as a spirit, flesh and blood. Of the Virgin Mary, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, who means God with us. Again, very Jewish thought, God with us. Luke 1:34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And if you're thinking, hearing some rings of, 1 Corinthians 15 through this, yes, very much so. John 19, um, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. The Pontius, many think the Pontius Pilate here specifically is to ground it in history. We're not talking some fancy, we're saying this was a historical person, historical event, we're citing who was responsible. And of course, you know, things with Pontius Pilate's name had been found um, in archaeology. You know, this is real guy. Um, and this is someone they could go to. Oh no, he, this happened and was done by that guy over there. And, you know, very powerful written in history. Was crucified. After they made fun of him, they took, off, uh, they took the coat off him and put his own clothes on him and they let him away to be nailed to a cross. He died. John 19, and when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And that was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken, the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Again, there are ideas though, maybe he didn't really die. No, John said, no, he died. Um, and was buried. And we, I, we don't have to read that whole passage, but obviously where Joseph and, and uh, Nicodemus take the body and take it to the... Um, or was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb that he had bought. With the highest honor, um, fully a uh, very final thing to do. He descended into hell. <laughs> Here's one of those lines that some people have a problem with. Yeah, me too. This line actually... Um, he descended to the dead. Thank you. It was later changed by a translation, kind of a little bit of a snafu, to hell. The idea is descended to the dead. Now, um, we get that from Ephesians 4 and 9. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions and from Peter 3, 
First Peter thing, guys. Sorry about that. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Okay, this is this is one of those, and it's a little bit fun because everybody's kind of like, I'm not sure I fully, I mean, theologian, I'm not really sure what this fully means. And, but, so there's all kinds of speculation. Some would rather just, just be removed and from the creed. Say, you know, I can fully well, accept this part. But the idea is, one, that he really died, he really was buried. Another idea is, what did he do on Saturday? What happened on Saturday? There's a lot of speculation of died on Friday or rose on Sunday. What was taking place on Saturday? Another view is um, he went and claimed victory. He defeated death. He went down, maybe went to hell, maybe went to the devil and said, I'm gonna, I won. I won this thing. Victory over the whole thing, over all creation. I'm, I'm going to cover it all, and I'm victorious. So that's the idea of descended to the dead. It's not as he had to suffer in hell. It was he was proclaiming victory, kind of. If even that, again, this is speculation. I think I've heard or read somewhere that, like, you know the references to Sheol in the Old Testament? Yes. I think that, like, some think that that was kind of a similar thing. Like, back in the Old Testament, there wasn't really this idea, I think, of, of heaven and hell as much as Sheol, where the dead are. So, like, right. maybe he went to this place. Right. And, and we get the idea of the burning hell of Gehenna, which was the idea of the fire pit outside Jerusalem for trash and things. And that was used to Gehenna. But you're right, in the Old Testament, it was Sheol. And this is much more that idea of he, he went where the dead were to proclaim victory and came out of that. Beyond that, it's speculation. It's fun. It's one of those rare things where most theologians say, you know, I'm not even sure, but this is what I think. It's kind of refreshing, actually, where they don't try to be certain. Do, do we know, like, what specifically they were thinking by putting that, this part in there? I mean, I know, I know like, we are kind of looking back on it, speculating, you know, different right. Right. The fact that there, there are people alive, you know, um, in, a sp in spirit who have died. Yes. So it mm -hmm. kind of confirms that to me. Yes. And also, it's also confirming again, he died. It, to me, you would say, where did he go? Mm -hmm. Well, it mm -hmm. would be logical because he died, he would go where other people have gone right. when they died. Right. And it mm -hmm. says they're imprisoned spirits. Right. Because this is before, you know, his... Exactly. And, you know, it's a little bit different. 
Yeah, and, and no, they're wanting to make sure he's, one thing they have, do have, and you're touching, y'all are touching, touch on, they want to make sure he, kind of like, and we're going to talk about this a lot next week. As one early church father says, he, what he has not assumed, he cannot save. He had to experience it all. And I think the idea is he went to the dead just like we, he did. He didn't get off, get a shortcut. He, he went to the grave like we all do. But in that, he also proclaimed victory over the whole thing. One person says, Rufinus, the only person who included it before AD 650, did not think that it meant that Christ descended into hell, but understood the phrase simply to mean that Christ was buried. In other words, he took it to mean that Christ descended into the grave. The Greek form has Hades, which can mean just grave, not Gehenna, hell, place of punishment. We shall also note that the phrase only appears in one of the two versions of the creed that we have from Rufinus. It was not in the Roman form of the creed that he preserved. So it was kind of this later, later, later thing. But clearly they, they felt like we need to add this because something, something's being taught that is pushing back on this. Um, but, but, you know, he did speak to the devil. Mm -hmm. that, you, know, you know, when he took him up on the pinnacle and stuff like that. So why would we not see that he might do the same thing? Mm -hmm. Kind of like, hey, in your face. Right, you know, right. I mean, I do kind of like the, the thought of him going and rubbing it in Satan's face. Well, <laughs> and keep in, mind, keep in mind, you know, we talk about atonement, and this isn't really a full theology class, and we can get on. Because we're dealing with the creeds here, we can go. I thought about that before we, when I was preparing, I thought, you know, you could spend weeks going on rabbit trails because there's so much theology, but we're trying to pack it into what these people are thinking. You but clear that with Anson. oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't clear anything with Anson. <laughs> but um, there, there's you know different views of atonement, and we don't have time, and, and have developed over time. One of them we think of you know the penal substitution thing, you know, took the punishment for the the wrath. But one of them is is the victory over death, and one is kind of a ransom thing too. In and so there is an idea of confronting evil and Satan and saying, you know, I, I've, you know, it's, it's not just, I've, we've won. Your plan is completely defeated. Because they use the term in the scripture, you're using the word proclamation and also in verse 19, after being made alive. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just said he, he's died. Right. And then it's saying after being made alive and then it's using the word proclamation. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah, R.C. Sproul says, most churches that believe in an actual descent of Jesus until did not, do not see him going to hell for further suffering because Jesus declares on the cross, it is finished. Rather, he goes to hell or to the dead to liberate those spirits who, from antiquity, have been held in prison. His task in hell, then, is one of triumph, triumph, liberating Old Testament saints. So that's his speculation. Again, it's one of those fun ones like, what oh, really happened on that Saturday? What's that? In prison, because it, it often uses the word asleep for people that die. Yes, but right, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think that's a great question. Yeah, in prison spirits. Yeah, like you're not freed yet to be with the Father. Um, 
and the the term sleep can be dead, but you know, in Sheol still the conscious or and some think that's what paradise is. Some think the idea of paradise is not necessarily heaven yet. Jesus is going to open that up when he goes. And on the third day he rose again from the dead. In Mark 10, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him? Three days later he will rise. In Acts 10:20, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He ascended into heaven. When Jesus had had said this, and while they were still looking at him, he was taken up. A cloud carried him away so they could not see him. They were still looking up to heaven, watching him go. All at once, two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, and they said, you, mean, you men of the country of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will return in the same way you saw him go up into heaven. Um, we always have to remember there, again, this could go off on another rabbit trail. New heaven and new earth. The whole idea is not just to get to heaven. It's God is recreating and renewing everything. Um, Irenaeus wrote that because of the ascension, Irenaeus, early church father, because of the ascension, we ascend through the Spirit to the Son and through the Son to the Father. This is no small deal. In Jesus, our nature has been taken up residence in the presence of God. That's, that's a wonderful thought. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Mark 16. After the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, he was taken up to heaven and he sat at the right hand of the Father. Of course, that's authority position. And he will come again. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? And we just read that. And he'll, he'll see him coming in. To judge the living and the dead. And um, this also, in some versions, can say quicken the dead. This can be the living. We talked about, I think the phrase, the terminology last week was kind of like he'd been resurrected to life. This one is, it's the quickening or quicker is a lot about the living part of it. Um, restoring to life or living. This is, this, sometimes you'll see Apostles Creed will say the quick and the dead. Um, Acts 10, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And First Peter, but they will give an account to him who is already judged, ready to judge the living and the dead. Article 3, so now we have the third part of the creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1, 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. John 15, and when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And Luke 1, 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will, will be called Son of God. Um, we'll get more into the Holy Spirit next when we get in the Nicene Creed. Um, about his deity and who he is. It's not an it. Not an it. Um, the holy. To make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word. Catholic. This is... Keep in mind, we're at the early church. There aren't... Denouement. There is no Roman Catholic church at this time. There's just the church. All this is 
unified as this is being developed. Now the later part, the, the divisions are starting to come up a little bit by the 800, you know, the 800, but bulk of this, when this creed's being developed, it's just, there's just one church. So the, the idea is a universal Christian church. Most people say universal is the better idea of the universal church. So Matthew 16, 18. Now I'll tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And he's not talking about Peter becoming the first pope. Um, he's talking about the message that he just told Peter. The communion of saints, Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Boy, does our country need to hear that for all the Christians. Mm -hmm. um, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Again, they're not going to go into the various ideas of how that happened. This is just a summary statement. They're just kind of summarizing the faith. They can talk about it in more detail later, but they're trying to hit the high points. And since then, we have even more views of what that means. Um, the resurrection of the body. So, be with, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, is raised imperishable. Again, flesh and blood. Flesh and blood being talked about. It's, it's a physical resurrection. It's not just a spirit resurrection. And a life everlasting and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you, kept in heaven for you. Just amazing summary, and then amen. I mean, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. It's just, I believe, and at the end it's amen. Amen. So much is packed in here. So many truths. I said, you know, you could go on rabbit trails on any one of these and um, spend weeks, if not months, just dissecting, you know, what does it mean that he died for our sins or Tell us about that resurrection. How did that happen? And what does it mean to be seated at the right hand? Of the you can go on and on and on. And you, some of you may think of various passages you want to use as scriptural references in there to, to, to amplify that. But um, the main takeaway is they're, they're summarizing the, the faith. It's developing over time. This was not a church council that came together to decide this. This was already developing. So he said kind of a grassroots idea. Churches were already coming up with it, they were sharing their ideas, but there was a common ground. It was broken down into three parts. And those are the three parts about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The parts, I think it's one thing that's cool, is we talk about the, the church, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, all the saints, the church, all, all fall under the, kind of the, I don't say, responsibility of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's kind of in charge of the church. He helps bond the saints and gives us power and gives us our the fruits that we have and that kind of thing. So it, the Holy Catholic Church in the communion of saints is not on equal to what the Holy It's kind of a subcategory of what the Holy Spirit does. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, it's, it's a special creed with special things and says, I said, it's said in many churches, in many Christians daily still. Um, it's powerful. It's sometimes you got to wrestle with some stuff. Like, what is it? Do I really believe this? I mean, what does it mean to have a universal church? What does that mean? That's hard. You know, we talked about last week, you know, C.S. Lewis's Great Hall or the, the, the big green yard that we have a lot of things. But where do we draw the line? Do we draw the line on what are, who are the Christians and who aren't? And sometimes that's not as easy. It's a little easier for us, I think, as Emmaus. We can easily identify other churches that may not be Acts 29 Reformed Church and say, well, that's still a Christian church. Or, you know, I know they're Christ, you know, they, maybe not all, everybody that goes to that church is a Christian, but you get the idea of anything. But there's some we think, you know, how do we draw the line with other churches that we have strong theological differences, but that still affirm this creed? And that's... Isn't it really those who believe? It's just the bottom line. I mean, I, I know some Catholics that I, I'd be hard-pressed to, to say that they weren't saved, mm -hmm. right? But mm -hmm. when you look at the tenets of the Catholic Church, you say, huh, how mm -hmm. do they mm -hmm. dismiss that or understand that? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it comes down to that word, you know, mm -hmm. which is, I believe. Right. Credo, with mm -hmm. the Italian word, I mm -hmm. believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. That's hard. Yeah, I, I just can't envision in heaven this way. Well, here's the Baptist line. Here, it's a, right. It's, your, it's either you believe and you're there or you're not. All right. Well, I think it always goes back to Christ. Mm -hmm. who, who do you say I am? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. us, enabling us through the Spirit, but it's also an acknowledgement of who we are right. as children of wrath. I mean, we, we, mm -hmm. it's that seeing yourself in comparison to a holy God. Right. And apart from that, there is no salvation, because if, if we don't see ourselves as we truly are in light of who He truly is, then we don't see that there's even a need for a Savior. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think you're right. And I think especially with the idea of it is finished. Well, how does someone see that? You know, what is Christ? Did he complete, you know, what does that fully entail? And how, what do we, you know, in the creed, do we believe that it is finished? What he did, is it finished? There are a lot of things you got to wrestle with, you know. I think I think that well. It's, it's right to wrestle and say, you know, or am I kind of making up my own faith? I'll take this part, but not that part. Of that, uh, and I'm not, again, 
we're going to test this against scripture, as we talked about at the beginning. So the creeds are not, you know, kind of as we talked about, maybe second in line. Yeah, I um, say it's, it's worthless if you can't tie it directly back to scripture. Right, and these, they obviously did. They obviously worked hard to make sure it was. They wanted the idea of the Apostles' Creed, although it didn't come directly from the Apostles, the idea was it's a direct reflection of their teaching. It really is being faithful to what their teaching was. And, um, and that's what we, we have to hold, hold to. Um, Mm -hmm. um, saw how we would divide. Right. Um, so it's, you need that, you need to be grounded in right. certain things. Right. Obviously, it needs to be from the Word, but um, we need to keep coming back mm -hmm. to that place. Right. Because just by virtue of us being the way right. we are, we're going to just, you know, we're going to divide. Right. And, and that's right. And it's, and Church is so much about a we. And that's the idea, you know, the communion of saints. Obviously, it's in the current. Um, and t Paul's talking about it constantly. Um, N.T. Wright does a great job of elsewhere. Talk about, you know, one of Paul's major themes is he's trying to get everybody to unify. That's one of his two big themes of most of his letters, if not every one of his letters. Unify as a church, folks. Unify as a church. And... So we come together and use the creeds and test them against Scripture as a church, as a, and that's what's been going on for 2,000 years, and they've held you up. think they had in mind that this was kind of a litmus test for, I don't know, the, the point in which, okay, we've got all these groups meeting and believing. Is this kind of, this is the essentials? Yes, it, it, was, it was coming, this is the essentials. What's going to happen is there are going to be some questions, and this is what we'll deal with next week. There is, there is still room for some heresy, even with the Apostles' Creed. And keep in mind, the Eastern Orthodox aren't necessarily... They, they saw this opening. They, one, one thing that had a little problem, they saw. They said, this is great, the way it's worded. You still may have an issue. And the issue did come. It was called Arianism. And the church had to confront that. And from that, Constantine said, y'all are having this big divide. You need to come together as a council and make this, you know, say what does Christianity, what is it going to believe? What's it going to teach on this issue? And that is the data, who is Christ? And, of course, the Orthodox not Eastern or the Orthodox, small or, you know, we've been teaching from the beginning, but all right, let's go. Because this guy, Arian, the Arians are teaching, um, Arius, Arians are teaching this false doctrine and we need to confront it. It was becoming a major problem. Hence, we will see next week the council come together, St. Nicholas come in and maybe try to take a swing at somebody. Um, yes, that's St. Nicholas. Um, greats like Athanasius um, all coming together and we're going to go through that creed next week. Um, a lot of the creed for the Nicene is 
similar to the apostles, clearly, because what they were kind of fine-tuning some things. But we're not going to go over every line that we've already gone over this week. We're going to go on the ones that are different and talk about specifically what was the issue, how did they address it, um, and mainly the deity of Christ, which has already been there, as we just heard N.T. Wright say, it was there from the beginning, but they felt like they had to, some people just didn't want to accept it or accept the full humanity of Christ. And they had to say, no, once and for all, this is it. When we teach this from the beginning, you people who are, you know, teaching different or going against the apostles and what we know, we're gonna to have to address it now. And, the, and they went on, Nicene, the Nicene Creed is actually two different councils kind of come and go. They finally fine-tuned it a little bit more to make sure, you know, let's get the Holy Spirit clarified too. Now you say, Jesus, let's get the Holy Spirit deity clarified too. So they did that, the same thing. We're going to go over all that. And then we're going to do the Chalcedonian definition, which is a fine-tuning of something else. Um, and then the Athanasian Creed. Um, well, if we have time, we'll wrap that up. But those are the considered the main creeds of Christian, Christianity, especially the apostles and the Nicene. Athanasian, sometimes you'll hear thrown in as a third. So, so does that, that make sense? Any other questions? Is this helpful? Good? Bad? Confusing? I tried not to throw as much at you this week, so that we had the, the groundwork done. But it's, it was an exciting time. Exciting time. And keep in mind, the Apostles' Creed is still, even after Nicaea, the Apostles' Creed is still being developed and tweaked. And What did it, what did it say? Because um, Rufinus, it was in the mid-300s, I think it didn't say that he had the descended in the hell part. Um, well, Nicaea takes place in 325. So the Apostles' Creed is kind of on a parallel track, but it's being said throughout Christianity as a good basis. And again, that comes from now scriptures are being, the, the canon of scriptures coming together, the Bible's coming together. Um, and they already had in mind the rule of faith kind of as a guide and the, the baptismal formulation. So all this is going on and it's, it's gonna to come to a head in 325. All right, questions? Good deal, thank you all. <laughs>